What a joy indeed uh, to hear that news. You know, it is a privilege that God uh, allows and, and uses us still. Um, and, 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 you know, Scripture says that, you know, one plants and other waters. Uh, but at the end of the day, and the harvest is there, we all rejoice. So praise God. Praise God. And, and just as much as it's a privilege to be used by God, it's a privilege for me to be here uh, and to look into His precious Word, which is true always, and, and to share forth what He has for us today. And uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians, uh, specifically chapter 8. Now, before I, wanna, before I go into that, I want to give a little bit of a, a context um, of what's happening in this church. You know, 1 Corinthians, it's a, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Um, now, this church is going through a multitude of issues. Uh, there, there's there's uh, division. There's no unity. Uh, there is arrogance from, from the, the so-called more mature Christian. Um, and, and they don't work together for the advancement of the gospel. And he wants them to drop this attitude. To, to get them to start building the faith of one another and to witness effectively to the lost. And in essence, if you look into this, there's a massive lack of love. A massive lack of love towards God, His people, and those who are lost. And so specifically in 1 Corinthians, we're going to be jumping into chapter 8. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it's the, it's the whole uh, chapter that we're going to be looking into, verses 1 to 13. And this is what it has to say for us today. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one, Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat 
lest I make my brother stumble. Let's just pray. Father, this is your living word. These are words that bring life. These are words that convict. These are words that rebuke. These are words that teach, that build up. We pray this morning that as we have gathered here that you would prepare our hearts to hear your voice and your words alone. We pray that our hearts would be like the good soil, ready to read, ready to receive this word and to produce fruit in abundance. For we have prayed this for your glory in the most precious name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Corinth. I want to talk a little bit about Corinth. Corinth was situated between the Greek mainland, Greece mainland, and a peninsula, the Greece peninsula. And right above it was the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. So think of this little strip of land that connects both the, the peninsula and the mainland, and it's a port city too. So what do you get when you have that? You have people traveling back and forth from the peninsula to the mainland. You have, you have uh, travelers by boat coming across, saying it's much more easier to get across. And, and you have this city that is filled with travelers, people from all abroad. And what happens is you have a cultural melting pot. You have this, you have this mix of all sorts of cultures, all sorts of religion, and with that comes all sorts of gods. And, it, and these gods permeated every walk of life, whether it was uh, in the government, in the courts, in the markets. If it is a wedding celebration, you'd, do, you'd, you'd have you know, uh, the celebration in the temple. Everywhere you went, there was a god. Now, Paul takes the gospel to Corinth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as soon as he does this, there's a church that's established. And, and as time passes by, and Paul is no longer in Corinth, he gets reports, reports of what's happening in the church, and it's not good. They're plagued with serious problems of division, there's sexual immorality, there's social arrogance, and a whole bunch of issues where the society around them is influencing the church versus the church influencing the society. And now this causes him to write this letter, 1 Corinthians, making the case that much of their conduct was out of step with the gospel. It is this letter that we dive into today, and we go to this portion, which deals with the limits to Christian liberty the limits to Christian liberty. Now, in verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, as mentioned before, melting pot of culture and religion, they had many gods of what we call polytheistic, uh, very similar if you think of if, if Hinduism. Um, they also believed in polydemonism, which means many demons. They believed that there were many gods up there and they believed there were many spirits and demons around them. And they worshipped all kinds of gods. There was a god of war, there was a god of love, there was a god of famine, of rain, of fertility, you name it, they had it. And there was a god of justice. Now if I were to ask you today, god of justice, what symbol comes in your mind? The, 
the statue, the lady blindfolded with the weighing scales and the sword. Even today, I mean, no one might worship, but you can see that which was so historic still permeates and exists today. God of justice. So think, picture this. God's everywhere, and you have a new convert, someone who's come to the faith, a baby Christian, born again. And he's saved out of this paganism that is still around him. So this Christian is in danger of constantly being exposed to idol worship. He's constantly you know, exposed to all of these gods. And he wants nothing to do with it. And he thinks, well, the only place of, that I, of, of, of being away from this is, is in church with my fellow brothers. And he comes there. And then you have the mature Christian who says, come on, there's no such thing as an idol. There's no other gods. Just partake of this food. Doesn't matter. Don't worry. Eat it. And this is where you have the clash and the conflict. You have these so-called mature Christians who have knowledge of all their freedoms, of their liberties, doing what they want to do while the weaker brothers sit on the sidelines, cringing as they witness this, shocked by what they see. Now, you know, the so-called food issue here, by the way, is still relevant in Christendom throughout much of the world, in India and in the further east, might not be as relevant to us today. However, this issue is more evident in our culture in different ways. Now, if we were to think of terms um, like, for example, alcohol. If I were to uh, broaden the discussion, by application, a variety of issues can be brought up. Whether a Christian should smoke, should a Christian watch certain movies, should he or her read certain books, listen to certain music. This passage can, you, can be used to deal with all sorts of gray areas in our life. Now he goes on to say this in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So stop here. Our Christian liberty is exercised within the context of love. Keep that in mind. Paul starts off by saying, listen, we all possess knowledge. We get it. You know, every one of us over time, we have, we have learned, we have acquired, or by effort or experience, we have gathered, we have knowledge. It's easy for us to think that we can know our way out of problems such as this, but knowledge is by no means everything. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Some Christian believers assumed that knowledge was the true sign of spirituality. They did not understand that knowledge without love indicates a lack of knowledge. Knowledge without love indicates a lack of knowledge. Love builds up. It strengthens the faith of believers rather than destroying it. To puff up, what does that mean? It means to blow up, to inflate, to, to be haughty, to be arrogant, to be prideful. Paul says that knowledge only makes the knowledge bearer proud and haughty, but love builds and edifies others. Love builds the believers up. Love builds the church up. It helps to build Christian character and helps in our spiritual growth. You know, here's something that's going 
on, a debate south of our border in the U.S. The Second Amendment, the right of the people to keep and bear arms. Now, basically, what, what's happening there in the U.S. is you have citizens who say, well, the Second Amendment says I can carry uh, a firearm. They're, they put on the vest. They, they carry a, a semi-automatic, not a pistol, a semi-automatic, and, and they walk down streets and neighborhoods. Hey, this is my right. I'm going to walk around showing people that this is a right. In fact, they'd say this is a God-given right. Now, what does this do? Now, in the current state of the world, people around in the neighborhoods are terrified. They call the cops up. The cops come. There's a commotion. There's an issue here. But see, this is an example of what it means to, to have knowledge about something and not have love and concern about those around you. See, I think there are many better ways to approach the topic on educating people on the Second Amendment. I just don't think that's a good way to do so. See, Paul then goes on in verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. You know, the moment you believe you have figured everything out, you are in such error. We need to be careful to avoid feelings like we know everything about a certain topic. See, Paul did not oppose people thinking themselves to have a measure of knowledge or insight. He's not opposing that. Rather, he warned that those who believe they have mastered a subject may become prideful. Now, don't get me wrong. Knowledge is essential, but it is not sufficient. Knowledge is essential, but it is not sufficient. You see, there are many Christians who get into the mindset where they believe their side holds the right knowledge and they have figured out everything. In fact, in Christendom, you will have debates. Pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, end times, soteriology, Arminianism, Calvinism. Now listen, many university campuses provide an opportunity and a place for discussion, and discussion is great. Opinions are great. Standing on one side and debating is good, but the moment we start debating with a lack of love, there is a fundamental issue. The moment one side thinks they've got the truth and the rest of their fellow brothers are in the wrong and they believe that they are to be looked down upon, we have a fundamental issue. And hear my words. It's okay to have discussions, but the moment you start looking down at another brother and you have no love, and you believe you have all knowledge about this, be aware. That's arrogance. Because he says, what does Paul say? You think you've reached? <laughs> you haven't. We as human beings, we haven't. We haven't reached understanding of everything on a certain topic or any topic. Knowledge must be balanced by love. This is what you really need to know. He goes on to verse th three. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, Paul does something interesting here, and, and I look at it as two things that he does with this simple statement. First, Paul wants the Corinthian believers to place a premium on love, not a knowledge 
He indicated that the superiority of the, the, he indicated the superiority of love by reminding them that the one who loves God and his kingdom is known by God. The expression known by God appears in Galatians 4 verse 9 as a description of what? Redemption. If you love God, you're showing forth the fact that you are saved. Love is paramount. Paul means that unlike the prideful people who center their religious life around knowledge, those who focus on love demonstrate that they have been redeemed. Second, Paul also uses the fact of God knowing us as a way of deflating the pride of the Corinthians. Think of this. The most important knowledge is this, that God knows you. That God knows you. This whole pursuit of knowledge, the most important piece is that God knows you. We all possess knowledge. The knowledge that really counts is not the one we possess. As Richard Hayes put it, what counts is not so much our knowledge of God as God's knowledge of us. That is the essence of salvation. It is in his knowledge of us that our true identity is found. The enlightened phrase of, I think, therefore I am, might be revised to, I am known, therefore I am. And he goes on to verse 4. Therefore, as the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. See, Paul is declaring to the Christians that all Christians have some knowledge that they share in common. We all share some knowledge in common. The knowledge is this, that God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the true God. In the following statement, however, Paul refers to a kind of knowledge that was not shared by all Christians, a knowledge that separated Christians who possessed it from Christians who did not. And here's the flow, the logic, the the flow of understanding that there's only one God means what? that idols carry no meaning or significance. Paul then recites this confession, this creedal confession, which is actually, it includes the Shema. If you remember what the Shema is, it is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your, our God, the Lord is one. He says, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Great study to do. In that phrase, you see the the two persons of the Trinity, God the Father and Jesus Christ. God the Father from Jesus Christ through. Keep that in mind and, and go back. But here's the key thing I want you to remember. It's so important. We exist for God. Think about that. We exist for God. I want you to repeat that after me. We exist for God. 
We exist for God. Now, we have one master. Our liberty, our rights that we have is the liberty and rights that are exercised for Him. The God of the universe. Our Christian liberty is exercised within the context of existing for Him. You know, we, we live in a society that enforces, hey, you, you're of importance. Oh, I'm of importance. Me, me, me. It's all about me. Do what is right for you. If anyone comes to you, brothers and sisters, and say, says, do what's right for you, that's not right. We exist for God. Paul says, wait, we exist for God. You don't exist for yourself. No matter how old you are, no matter how old you are, you exist for God. You don't exist for your career. You don't exist for yourself. You don't exist for your education. You exist for God. That means everything you do, every right you exercise must be within that context. Imagine that. If every morning you woke up with that meditation, I exist for God. That means everything that I do today, everything that I do, every right, every choice, every decision I make is one that has to impact or have importance for God. And I think if this is the truth exercised in our household, if, if this is what our kids saw and heard, I think the moment we embrace this truth and not struggle with it, but embrace it, it's God's word. Don't fight it. We exist for God. Period. Stop thinking about it. Do I really exist? No, you exist. Period. And now move on. Embrace that truth. That this is our purpose. I think a majority of our struggles will fall away and we will start aligning ourselves to God's will in our lives. Paul then goes on to say, see, food will not commend us to God. In verse 8, we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the person for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Sometimes exercising your right can cause another brother to stumble. Paul affirms the truth that there is but one God and that these so-called gods are just the, that, idols. No power within them because what are they in comparison with the God of the universe who is within you? Food will not com commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. The principle here is whatever right or liberty you want to exercise, let it not be something that will cause another to stumble. You have to know your brother and sister. Understand their struggles. Because if you sin against your brother, you sin against Christ. This applies to all. And please, don't be trying to figure out who the weaker brother is here and who the stronger brother is here. This applies to each one of us. Don't think about anyone else. This is 
the word of God for each individual here. Christ, basically what Paul is saying here is, Christ counts what is done to his people as being done to him. See, the Corinthians must realize that their actions affect the entire community of believers. When Saul was persecuting the church, what did Christ say? Why do you persecute me? But listen, Saul was an unbeliever. But what excuse do we have? What excuse do we have when we cause one another to stumble, when we exercise our rights that could cause a brother or a sister to stumble? See, Paul uses some very strong words here. He says, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. And I'll give you an example. Let's say you have a believer who has a tender conscience about drinking alcohol of any kind. He is in the home of a peer who offers him a glass. The person is someone he admires, perhaps, and respects. Other Christians at the same table have accepted the wine and gets a taste for it. His conscience rises up in warning but now it's too late. He has developed a liking for wine. The viper has bitten him. He wants more. He finds himself at last a drunkard, a hopeless slave to drink. If he recovers at all, it will only be at a fearful cost. In any case, he has been destroyed because the word Paul uses here means utter ruin and loss. Utter ruin and loss. The word says destroyed. Interestingly enough, the word is used by Jesus to describe the marring of the wineskin when subjected to the action of wine they were not meant to hold. Let me read that. Jesus uses this word to describe the marring of the wineskins when subjected to the action of wine they were not meant to hold. It was used in the sheep that was lost and the condition of the lost prodigal. To be responsible for someone's ruin Someone indeed for whom Christ died is a high price to pay for the indulgence of one's right. It's a high price. So are we called to exercise the rights we have at the cost of another believer? Are we here to be a stumbling block for another brother? No, we are here to love them and to treat them with love and to build them up to be conscious of the choices we make. You know, we live in a society. It says, my body, my life, my money, my choices. Well, God says, you have rights, but it better not come at a cost of causing another brother or sister to stumble. How often do we find ourselves exercising our liberty to rest and entertainment at the expense of a brother or sister? How often do we exercise our freedom of speech at the expense of a brother or sister? So if I were to ask you, do you really have the rights? If it's going to cause a brother to stumble or a sister to go against their conscience, I would say the right ought not to be a right. We are called to be devoted to one another in love. Love triumphs over knowledge. It is a love for God and a love for his people over a love to exercise your rights. 
I remember asking my wife this when, when I got married, what is love? Well, if you want to know, go to chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians and meditate on it and think about every relationship you have and see how it applies. If you really want to know what love is, the ball's in your court. Verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul goes to the extent of saying that if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. Can can you imagine that? Maybe for all the meat lovers here. Can you imagine that? Saying, I'm going to go vegan because I don't want to cause my brother to stumble. To that extent, I love my meat. To think that Paul says that he is willing to give up meat, and what does he say? (laughs) I will never eat meat. Forever. Not just this instance. I will never. That's, wow. Do you get the seriousness of what is being said here? He expresses the distance that he is willing to go to demonstrate his love for fellow believers. Although Paul knows that it's theoretically acceptable to consume meat sacrificed to idols, he does not act on such knowledge or appeal to his right of freedom. Instead, he bases his decision concerning certain matters on his love for believers in Christ. Now, for the so-called weaker brother, you do have responsibilities. He is not to use his prejudices or preconceived thoughts in such a way to hold a strong believer ransom at all times. There are some, of, some who use their inhibitions just to get their own way. They will rub, rob others of all their liberty. But you know what? Romans 15, 2 says this. It takes care of that. It says, let each of us, each of us, place Please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Whether you're a new believer, whether you've been in the faith for so long, whether your conscience is weak about something, whether it's not, we are all called to build one another up. No excuses. No excuses. So if you think you're new to the faith and you can't build someone up, you can. You can. Every one of us as Christians have a call to build one another up in love. Now here are a few questions that we can ask ourselves before we exercise certain rights or make certain decisions. You know, the church has faced these kind of questions for a long time, and it changes from culture to culture. These so-called gray areas that the Bible doesn't talk about specifically. Is it okay to smoke? Is it okay to drink? Should Christians gamble? Should they tattoo their bodies? The Bible might not specifically speak about this, but it does give us plenty of principles to help us make good, God-honoring choices when it comes to these gray areas in our life. And I stumbled upon this when I was reading an article by John MacArthur, and there are three um, questions that we can ask for any of these areas that, that you're in and you're like, ah, is this going to cause an issue? Well, the moment you ask that question, I think that's a good That's a good indicator. But here are the the six questions. The first one is this. Do I really need it? Do I really need to do it? That's the first question. Hebrews 12 was one. It says this. Therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let also let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's a distinction here between weight and sin. Right? Every anything that is of no need. A choice, a decision, something do you do that is something that you really do not need that just bogs you down potentially. Do I really need it? Second, is it profitable? Is it really going to help me? This decision that I'm going to make. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Is this thing actually going to be profitable? It's actually going to help me? So do I really need it? Is it profitable? Third one is this. What would Jesus do in this situation? And I know a lot of people this day and age get tired of WWJD. What would Jesus do? But it's a good question to ask because here's what it says in 1 John 2, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him, what? Ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So if, if any of us say, hey, we're a Christian, we abide in Jesus Christ, John says you better walk the same way in which he walked. The whole package. What would Jesus do? You want to know? Read your Bible. Don't assume, but read your Bible. See how he interacted. See the choices he made. See where his heart was. See how he exercised his rights. Do I really need it? Is it profitable? What would Jesus do in the same situation? Fourth one. Is this going to enhance my testimony to an unbeliever? Colossians 4 verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. This choice that I'm going to make, is it actually going to enhance my testimony to the unbelievers around me? This right that I'm going to exercise, is it going to enhance my testimony? Their perceptions. For example, their choices, let's say if, if you're in the Middle East and you're over, you, you, you know, you're, you're surrounded by Muslims, you don't have to be in the Middle East only to be surrounded, but let's say you're in the Middle East, you're surrounded by Muslims, they're true to the faith, you invite them over and you crack open a, a bottle of wine or whiskey or whatever, you tell me, how, how is your testimony going to be that moment? Shattered. It's going to be a different case with the, potentially with some Hindus. But your testimony, it's important. What people think of you and, and they see. One of the biggest issues with Christianity today, and I'm going to use the word Christianity because out there, we're clumped in with what people define Christianity as. And they look at us and they say they don't walk the way they ought to. We have to fight that. Our testimony is so important. Fifth one. Will it build another brother up spiritually? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Galatians 5 verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Serve one another. Will this choice I make actually build another brother up, another sister up? Will edify them? So do I really need it? Is it profitable? What would Jesus do? Is this going to enhance my testimony with the lost? Will it build another brother up spiritually? And the last one is, will it exalt the Lord? Will it exalt God? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, and some of us would wish that that's all it, it said and ended there. He says, oh, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. Will it exalt the Lord? And I think if you ask these six questions to very, any circumstance or situation that you're in, I think you'll get the answer. Brothers and sisters, if you follow Christ because someone told you it was easy, they lied to you. Let's correct any misconception here. And please listen to me. We should follow Christ because he is the truth. Not because it's convenient. In fact, following Christ is not convenient. Isn't it more convenient if I follow my desires, my flesh, my ways, my rights? We ought to follow Christ because he is the way, the truth, and the light. Embrace these statements. Embrace the word of God. Don't doubt it. Don't question it. Embrace it. You know, for some of you, this might be a tough pill to swallow. In fact, for all of us, this might be a tough pill to swallow. And it reminds me of the, the movie The Matrix, you know, where, where the people in the world live, live a lie, for those of you who might remember it. You know, it's easy, and I'm just summarizing this, but it's easy to live in this fake world. Now, the main actor here is given an opportunity where he can choose a blue pill to swallow, which allows him to live in this lie or to take the red pill, which brings him to the real truth and reality, which is, oh boy, hard to, leave, hard to live, but it is the truth. Which path do you choose? Are you going to love in such a way that you sacrifice your rights so that God be exalted Brothers, be edified. The lost, be evangelized. Or are you going to exercise your rights irrespective, thereby sinning against the Most High God who you have to give an answer to? I want to give all of us, you know, a minute or two to just go before God's presence and to think about the word that was shared today. And then I'll close in prayer.
Father, your word is beautiful. It's a two-edged sword, able to divide our soul and our spirit, to correct, to rebuke, to teach, to exhort, to edify. And Father, we pray that this word that was revealed to us today that we got to get into would not be snatched away by Satan, would not fall on hearts that are stony or hearts that are of thorny ground, but that it will fall on hearts that are ready to take in this word. Father, we pray that as a community, we would embrace the truth that is revealed in your word. Because you're a God who does not lie. You're a God who's faithful. You're a God who's true. Father, we pray for this community that you would open our minds, our, our eyes up, that we would observe our brothers and sisters, that we would see have there been people that we have offended by our exercising of rights, that we would not think about who the weaker brother is here, but that each of us would look into every decision that we make. Did it glorify you? Did it enhance our testimony? Did it edify someone? Father, work in our hearts. We know it's not an easy path, but that is no excuse. We pray that we would try our best to imitate, that we would imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, for that is our calling. And we thank you once again for your son who's made this possible, who has shown us what it means to come down, what it means to live for the will of another. And we pray that we would be in love enamored, challenged by his life. And we pray that you would strengthen us, that your spirit would work in every corner of our heart, that we would truly love you for the consequences are grave. And thank you so much, Lord, for knowing us. In Jesus Christ's precious and holy name.